This time of year, there's a traditional message that, that I have even preached a couple times. What is at the heart of that message as we get ready for a new year? Weight loss. <laughs> Weight loss. <laughs> that could be one of them. Resolutions, right? That's what we start to talk about. And I think that's a good thing. But this year, I'm going to break the mold a little bit and speak about something that if you're like me after the Christmas season, I think will be very relevant. I'm going to speak to you about rest. John Piper actually did a, a study called The Theology of Sleep. How many of you love to sleep? I don't know if it would be hard to write that Theology of Sleep paper because you're thinking about sleeping the whole time. But he went into it and he's asking the question, why did God design us to sleep? You know, essentially a, a third of our lives is spent asleep. And he starts to wrestle with these, like, man, think of all the things we could do at that time. You know, how many more people we could talk to about Jesus? You know, some of us could have two or even three careers. Think of all the things we could do. Why did God create us to need sleep? And he came to the conclusion from the word of God that God thought it up for his creatures as an act of love. He gets that from Psalm 127, verse 1. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Listen to this. For he grants sleep to those he loves. You ever think of sleep as a, a gift of love to you from your heavenly father? <laughs> some of you are saying yes. Yeah. Some of you that struggle with it are saying no. You see, what sleep is at its core is it's the opposite of anxiety. It's saying, Father, I'm going to lay my head down tonight. And because I know, as it says in Psalm 121.4, you neither slumber nor sleep. Because I know you're awake, I'm going to trust you with the challenges and the problems of my life. It's a constant humbling reminder of who's really in control. Piper says this, he says, how humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Reminds us who's God. God handles the world quite nicely while half the world sleeps, doesn't he? Keeps things running. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He's not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. So now, if you were thinking about a nap today, you can consider that as application of this morning's sermon. So you're welcome. Enjoy that. I know one other guy that wrote an article that actually went this far. He said, I don't trust a man that doesn't sleep. Obviously, no one doesn't sleep at all, but this guy was saying, hey, the, the guy that doesn't ever rest or slow down, essentially is saying, really, the world depends on me. And a guy or a gal like that can be a dangerous person when they get that kind of self-focus. We need to be careful of that. There's this physical rest that God offers, but there's a deeper rest. We all, at some point in our lives, wrestle with this spiritual anxiety, this spiritual guilt that reminds us that on my own, I'm not right with God. I fall short. And that's the deeper kind of rest that 
that Jesus came to offer. You know it from Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Maybe that's you this morning, wrestling with some of that. I want you to know Jesus came to offer that as well. So what we're going to do is look at a showdown where he fought for our rest with the Pharisees. Luke chapter 6. It's coming after a couple other showdowns with the Pharisees. One was when he touched the leper and healed him, and that was freaking them out because lepers were ceremonially unclean. He told a paralytic, I'm going to forgive your sins, and they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Today, he's going to have another showdown. And it's on the Sabbath, and it's about the Sabbath. And as I see Jesus in all these showdowns with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, I envision him as William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. You know, say it with me. Freedom! I see Jesus as our freedom fighter going before us to pave a path of grace and freedom with him. And to pave that trail, it required a number of battles with the religious leaders of his day. So as we look at this showdown, I want you to look with gratitude to the Savior who went to the plate for us to fight for this freedom, to fight for this rest. He had spent over a year gathering disciples and beginning his ministry. And now he's beginning that second year of ministry He's going to start to focus in. He's going to organize those followers and he's going to more and more start to say, this is why I'm here. It's coming to a head in his ministry. And you remember last week, some of that involved looking at the religious leaders of his day and saying, I didn't come just to put a few patches on the religious traditions that you guys are living by because patches don't work. I came to bring a whole new garment of grace that comes with trust in me. And today he's going to show them one ramification of that. He's going to have a showdown with them about the Sabbath. Now, when you look at the the law, the Sabbath was a big deal. Okay? It's the big daddy. You know, it happened every seven days, so it was always on the religious leader's mind. It had its roots in the Mosaic law. God gave it to Moses. Nehemiah says this, you came down... On Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. But came from God, and Nehemiah says, what God says is good. The problem with the Old Covenant wasn't God's word. The problem with the Old Covenant was our sinfulness. We couldn't do it. Okay? Exodus 20 as remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, etc. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's from God in that Old Testament law, and it's rooted not only in Moses' law, but creation. So this is a big deal. You know what Sabbath means? It literally means rest. Thank you, Katrina. I like shouting from the back row. (laughs) The Pharisees had looked at God's law and said, don't do any work on the Sabbath. 
And they wanted to be very careful that no one did. Understandably so, because their nation had been removed, partially because they didn't observe the Sabbath. So they wanted to build all these hedges around it. And I looked at what some of the hedges the Pharisees had added were. You were allowed to write a letter, like not a, a note, but a single letter. But you couldn't write two or more letters on the Sabbath day. You, you were allowed to erase a letter, but you couldn't erase two or more letters on the Sabbath day. You couldn't look in a mirror, some of you guys are like this, on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, gray hair and that would be reaping. They said you could only eat an egg which had been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken first breaking the Sabbath. A donkey could be led out of the stable on the Sabbath, but the harness and saddle had to be placed on them the day before. If the lights were on when the Sabbath came, the Sabbath started at sundown, you could not blow them out. If they had not been lit in time, then you could not light them. You couldn't wear jewelry because that might be construed as carrying a burden. You weren't allowed to put false teeth in. Believe it or not, they had false teeth in these times. You weren't allowed to put them in because that was considered work. That'd make for some <laughs> interesting gatherings of people and in those conversations. You're allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them into salt because you might leave them in the salt too long and pickle them and pickling radishes would break the Sabbath. You could spit on a rock. You could not spit on mud because that would be considered making mortar. And that was work. I could go on, but you could see the kinds of traditions that had grown up around the Sabbath. In comes Jesus. We're going to have a showdown. One happens in a field. And one happens in the synagogue. And I want you to see the freedom and the rest that Jesus came to bring for them and for us today. First one in the field, I want to drive home one main point. Divine service to God is more important than our religious traditions. Divine service to God is more important than our religious tradition. Watch what happens here. And it blows my mind that the Pharisees are watching what the guys do in a field. I mean, these guys are really after Jesus. They're working hard if they're watching him and his guys in the field. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I don't know if they were hiding out in the field or what, but they saw Jesus' disciples picking these kernels. And the law permitted that. If you read Deuteronomy, it says, If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you can pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. It said you could pick it, but the Pharisees looked at them pulling it. They, they viewed that as harvesting. And when they rubbed it in their hand, they saw that as threshing and winnowing and prepping a meal, which you weren't allowed to do. So, bam! Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Showdown begins. Jesus answered them from their own Old Testament. Have you never read what David did? Now they hear David, they're thinking our greatest king ever. And Jesus goes right to him for a reason. He says, you never read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God 
And taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. I don't know if you remember the story. Samuel recorded it for us in the Old Testament. Saul had just clearly expressed his intentions that he was going to kill David. David was God's anointed king, the one God had chosen to be king over Israel. And now David's on the run. What's David's call on his life? To be king. That's his divine service for God. He shows up at the tabernacle and every Sabbath, what they would put out is 12 loaves representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. According to the law, the ceremonial law, only the priests could eat that bread. But David showed up there on his divine mission from God to be king. He and his men are starving. And he says to the priest, do you have any bread? And the priest says, all I got is the ceremonial bread, but go ahead and eat it. And David is never condemned for that. Could he have fulfilled God's calling on his life if he and his men had starved? No, he couldn't have. They needed to eat. And God overrode that ceremonial law because David's calling and his divine service to God was more important than that bread not being eaten by anyone than a priest. You can see what he's doing. He's saying David was a king and he had freedom to override that ceremonial law to to fulfill God's call on his life. I'm the king. I have freedom to overcome your traditions on the Sabbath. If you don't believe that God does that sometimes in the Old Testament, there's another moment in 2 Chronicles that I want you to hear. 2 Chronicles 30, verses 18 through 20. It's going to be one of the greatest Passover celebrations in a long, long time. King Hezekiah had put it together. And it says this, it says, Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, and they had all these ritual cleansings, these people traveled, they hadn't purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets their heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, even if they are not clean according to to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Understand what's going on there. God's looking at the heart and he's saying, their hearts are right before me. It's more important than this ceremonial regulation. One man said it this way, David did not allow cultic regulations to stand in the way of fulfilling his divine calling. Jesus has a similar mission and is authorized to decide when to override Sabbath tradition to fulfill a greater divine purpose. He said, I'm the king. I'm free to do this. He's going to go on and clarify that even more with a statement that would shock them. Verse 5, he says, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that may not be shocking to you and I, But to them, the Lord of the Sabbath is God. God gave them the Sabbath. What's Jesus saying here? I am God. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the second time he's called himself Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself in the Gospels. And it looks back to Daniel. When he says Son of Man, we think of 
primarily one aspect that he's identifying with us and that's part of it. But here's the other part that a good Jew would think of when they heard son of man. Daniel 7, 13. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. This son of man was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's saying, that's me. That's me. And I'm, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. When he fights for our freedom here, in Matthew 12, when it records this, he also tells them something else. He quotes from Hosea 6. Where God had said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said, I desire love and mercy for one another more than I desire your religious show. If you're not loving each other and having mercy on each other, if you're not loving me, your religious show is detestable to me. He said that several places in the Old Testament. Listen to what Alexander McLaren said. The Pharisees' judgment would have been more like God's if they had looked at these poor hungry men with merciful eyes and with merciful hearts rather than with eager scrutiny that delighted to find them tripping in a triviality of outward observance. What mountains of harsh judgment by Christ's own followers on each other would have been removed into the sea if the spirit of these great words had played upon them? Which begs the question, which view of people more characterizes your heart? my heart is it a view of mercy and love or is it that view that just can't wait to find people tripping so we can nail them Matthew 23 says woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites you give a tenth of your spices your mint your dill your cumin but you've neglected the more important matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You see what they were doing? They were getting all tripped up on the small stuff and missing the things that God wanted the most in their lives, that love and that mercy and that faithfulness. And I want to go back to the point and drive it home with an application. Your divine service to God is more important than our religious traditions. I saw this showdown played out about three months ago. Carolyn and his friends with a number of pastors' wives around the country. And one of the ladies had posted on there that their church on a Sunday morning was going to do a community outreach. They had prayed about it, and they felt, you know what, this is a great way to engage our community. We're going to bring them in. We're going to have food. And we're going to tell them about this Savior that we love so much. We're going to tell them how they can get plugged in, and, and we're going to minister to them on a Sunday morning. And in this group of ladies, you wouldn't believe the backlash this pastor's wife got from many of the other pastor's wives. When Carolyn told me about it, we were just like, this is ridiculous. One, one lady, this is a, a, a loose quote, she said, that would never happen on my husband's watch. <laughs> As though somehow 
having a community outreach on a Sunday morning instead of three songs of message and two songs was, was breaking God's heart. What were they doing, those ladies? They were being these Pharisees, right? They were saying, you know what, this, that's not how we do it. That's not how we've always done it. And they were willing to sacrifice a chance to take Jesus into their neighborhood for the sake of their tradition. I look at it and say, man, that's awesome. Maybe we'll do that sometime. So get ready. Divine service to God is more important than our religious traditions. Now I want us to look at our own lives. Is there any place where our religious traditions are keeping us from what God's called us to? You say, what's he called us to? I think of at least a couple things at the heart of it. One is the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. Think of his great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is there any place where religious tradition is keeping you from doing that, keeping you from going there, worrying about what the other Christians would think if I did this, even though Jesus is calling me to it? I think about a group of you that heard about the need Rose presented last week. She said, I got a friend that, she had a friend that she met in Granville eight years ago. They moved in at the same time. And over the last eight years, her friend has come down with Alzheimer's. And about eight or ten of you said, you know what, I'll go with Rose. And we're going to sing some Christmas songs to, to Sam and her other friends at the house. And Rose told me this morning how the workers there were just blown away. Uh, that folks would take time to do that. And that blew me away because you assume every nursing home is hit with folks, but they said they never get anybody in there. And it made me think, man, some of them do, but there's so many that don't. And I thought, what a shame would it be if those eight people that signed up said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm about to celebrate Jesus' birth on Christmas. I got to finish wrapping my presents. (laughs) I got to go shopping. I got to, I know I signed up for that, but I'm just too busy celebrating Christ's birth. They would have missed out on a great blessing upon those people and the workers and a blessing themselves. Don't let religious traditions get in the way of what God's called us to. Second encounter moves in from the field to the synagogue, the place where the Jews worshipped. The point I want to drive home here is divine service to those who need help is more important than our religious traditions. First one was service to God. This one we're talking about service to people that need help. Watch this, verse 6. On another Sabbath, and one guy listed seven instances where Jesus had a showdown on the Sabbath with the Pharisees. It's like he went out of his way to have this showdown because it was an important one. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Some people look at the Pharisees and they see them as so conniving. They wonder, did the Pharisees plant this man here? Maybe they knew Jesus was going to be teaching. Let's bring this guy this morning and just see what happens so we can trap Jesus. We don't know if that's the case. Wouldn't put it past him. But man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Useless, withered. That's, That's what the Greek word means. Just unusable. And Luke, the doctor, Make sure we know that it's his right hand. Most of us are right-handed. You can imagine what that would do to a guy's livelihood, right? 
Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whether they planted him or not, we know this, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. One of the guys pointed out the irony of this. They know Jesus can heal. They've seen it. And still they're looking to trap him. The, the narrow-mindedness is amazing. They want to see if he's going to heal. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Now some of us as Christians think, man, I better never stir the pot. I always got to be like this peaceful little lamb, stay quiet. Jesus here, <laughs> he knows what they're thinking. And instead of saying, Psst, hey, guy, how about we wait till after service? Or, you know, if we wait just a few hours, Sabbath will be over. You, you come over with me and the disciples and we'll take care of this. There's people watching. No, Jesus is like, come up to the front. Come up to the front. So the guy got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I love Jesus' questions. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? <laughs> They're not going to answer him. You, if you know the story, you know that. They know the right answer. Are, you think they're really going to come out and say, to do evil. I mean, the whole room's going to look at them, right? They know the answer is to do good and to save life. But they're not going to say it in front of people. <laughs> Jesus' reaction, he looked around at them all. I think one version in the gospel says he was, he was incensed by their unwillingness to speak up. He was incensed at the fact that they were missing the fact that this man's livelihood was on the line and all they could think about was, will you heal him on the Sabbath? Now, they, they had allowed for healing on the Sabbath if it was life-threatening. They, they had allowed for midwives to do their thing with a birth and they had allowed for circumcision, but something like this, you got to wait. He looked around at them all, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now, I look at that, and I, I see a couple things that a couple guys brought out. One is, he showed them the foolishness of their stance. The lack of mercy and compassion to not even care about this man in their midst. But also, when he healed him, how did he do it? He just spoke. He did it without even breaking their traditions. So he taught them a lesson. He healed the guy without even breaking their traditions. And you can imagine them just shaking their heads. He got us again. There's a quote in Lord of the Rings. When you look at the religious leaders and you look at Jesus, the hands of the king are healing hands. And thus shall the rightful king be known. You want to know who was the real king, who was the real leader that day? It wasn't the Pharisees. It was the one who healed the man's hand. Gave him his livelihood back. So they had been had again. Verse 11 says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
their hatred grew so strong that Mark in chapter 3 says this. It says, they went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Pharisees hated Herod. Pharisees hated Herod because he, he did a lot of stuff with the Romans. He got along with the Romans pretty good, but they hated Jesus so much that they said, hey, we're willing to team up with even them to get the job done. Jesus knew, Mark 3, 7 says, he withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Now I want you to think about the reaction of the Pharisees in the presence of a miraculous healing, in the presence of a Messiah making sure his disciples are fed. Listen to this quote about them. Let's ask ourselves, are we getting there as well? I hope not. Neither his gentle wisdom, Jesus, nor his healing power could reach their hearts, made stony by conceit and formalism. And all that their contact with Jesus did was to drive them to more intense hostility and to send them away to plot his death. That is what comes of making religion a round of outward observances. The Pharisee is always blind as an owl to the light of God and true goodness, keen-sighted as a hawk for trivial breaches of his cobweb regulations and cruel as a vulture to tear with beak and claw. Their race is not extinct. We all carry one inside us and need God's help to cast them out. I pray our hearts aren't heading down the path of the Pharisee. And I look at that second main point, that divine service to those in need is more important than our religious tradition. And I want to offer you some freedom somewhere. You may have never heard a pastor say this, okay? So I'm going to brace you. All right? I'm going to brace you because I trust God, okay? And I trust His Word. I trust that He cares about the physical needs of people in the world. I believe in giving to God's church. This church runs on the generous gifts of of people's giving. But I want you to know, if you're ever in a situation where you have $100 or $200, and God starts to lay it on your heart that you have this neighbor in need, there's this shelter on your heart that's helping the homeless. There's a concrete need in front of you, and, and God lays it on your heart to give that there. But the other side of your mind says, well, really, I, I, I should take this to the church. I, I want you to know you follow God, okay? You follow God with that. God will take care of his church. You follow him. Let's be a church that meets those needs that are around us. Let's be a church that realizes his heart for those in need. So we look at Jesus, our, our freedom fighter, on the Sabbath. And I want to close with a couple ramifications for us today. What does this mean that Jesus fought for the rest, the freedom? Sabbath means, as we said, deep rest. You know a close synonym to it in Hebrew? Shalom. A state of wholeness, flourishing in, in every area of life. Okay, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. What that means, he's the source of the, the deep rest that we need. Be it physical or be it spiritual. 
One day a week, which is often what we debate when we come to these passages, is just a taste of the rest that we need. And Jesus is the source of that complete rest. Okay? Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Remember we talked earlier about sleep being a gift from God? The Sabbath rest is a gift from God as well. It's not something to fight with each other about and strap on each other in a legalistic way. It's a gift, this idea of rest that comes in Jesus. And I love that in Matthew chapter 12, when he records this same Sabbath showdown, it came right after the end of Matthew 11 where Jesus had said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's no coincidence that he said that right before these Sabbath showdowns. He said it, then he showed it. McLaren says, Jesus looks with clear-sighted compassion into the inmost history of all hearts, And he sees the toil and the sorrow which weigh on every soul. Jesus knows that toil and struggle and sorrow that you may be feeling this morning. He knows it. And there's two kinds of rest that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 11. McLaren broke them down. I think this is beautiful. The first one is a rest that comes when we come to Christ. When we first trust in what he did on the cross for our sins and his resurrection. That's the first kind of rest. He calls it the rest of a quiet conscience, which gnaws no more. The rest of a conscious friendship and union with God, in whom alone are our soul's home, harbor, and repose. The rest of fears dispelled. The rest of forgiveness received into the heart. Do you have that? In Jesus? There's a couple of places it's explained. First, we have this peace with God. Romans 5, listen to this. Since we have been justified through faith, we've been made right with God through faith in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways this rest plays out. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have peace with God. Your eternity is sealed, but That's not it. You have peace with God right now. You have a relationship with him as your father. You can rest in that if you trusted in Christ. There's also the peace of God. Bless you. Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's peace with God, there's the peace of God. And that line which transcends all understanding, I love it. It's like peace that doesn't even make sense. Mind-blowing peace. Like how could that person have peace when they're going through that? It comes from the rest that comes in Christ. Tim Keller says, there's a work underneath our work that we really need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. What's he talking about? He's saying sometimes another vacation ain't going to cut it. Sometimes another day off ain't going to cut it because it's deeper than physical 
Even when we're off, we're trying to make ourselves right with God. And it's an endless cycle. He's saying that's what we need rest from. And that's what Jesus brought. So that's the first kind, the rest in coming to Christ. McLaren points out the second kind. There's a rest in working with Christ. Do you know you can have rest even while you work with Christ? That's the second part that Jesus was talking about. When he's talking about, first he said, come to me. Right, that's the first one. But then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You know what you put a yoke on for, right? It's to plow. But the thing that Jesus says is you put it on and he has it on. And we have the Holy Spirit in us. He says, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy means it's well-fitting. And it means that no longer am I trying to do it on my own. I got Jesus working in me. I got the Holy Spirit working in me. So that's a second kind of rest. Listen to McLaren. He says, there's repose in saying, you are my master and to you I bow. When we do that, we're delivered from the unrest of self-will. We're delivered from the unrest of contending desires. You get rid of the weight of too much liberty. Have you ever found that? You think living for you is the way, but then you do it, and it becomes like you're in your own prison. Creed had an album a few years ago, My Own Prison. That's what it feels like when we keep walking our own path. He says there's peace and submission. Peace in abdicating the control of my own being. Peace in saying, you take the reins. You rule. You guide me. There's peace in surrender and in taking his yoke upon us. And he says it's unfortunate that too many Christians separate those two kinds of rest. Some of us only talk about the rest that comes with forgiveness. And then we go out and try to live the rest of our lives by, our, by ourselves in our own paths. Other Christians talk only about doing what's right and they never talk about the forgiveness in Christ and he says that separation is one reason why so many Christian men and women are such poor Christians as they are having so little real religion and consequently so little real joy do you have both those kinds of rests rest in coming to him rest in working with him the rest in working Jesus showed it on another Sabbath day showdown John chapter 5, he did another healing. And you know what Jesus said when the Pharisees came to him? He said, my father's always at his work to this very day. Even on this Sabbath, my father is working. And I too am working. Tim Keller points out it's the difference between the two men in chariots of fire. Y'all remember that movie? Come on, I know it's a little old. All right. Okay, he had Harold Abrahams, right? He's the, the competitor to the main character, Eric Little. You remember why Harold Abrahams ran? He said, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's why he ran. It was all about what he could do to justify his existence. That's what a lot of us are doing. We're trying to justify our existence. That's tiring. Eric Little... He just wanted to please the God who had already accepted him. You remember his line in the movie? God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. When you look at your own life, you look at your work with Christ, ask yourself, which one of those characterizes it? Am I like the first man trying to justify my existence? Or am I saying, hey, God put his Holy Spirit in me, 
I know it brings him pleasure when I work with him. So I'm going to do it. I, I just, I love it. I feel his pleasure. A couple more points. Warren Weirdby says, don't call Sunday the Sabbath. Okay, their Sabbath was on Saturday. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, his early church began to meet on Sundays. The Sabbath was rest after work for the Jew. Points back to the law. I work, then I rest. You know the picture of the Lord's Day, it's rest before work. That's the picture of grace. I'm accepted in Christ. He rose again. He took care of my sin. He's with me. I got the Holy Spirit in me. Now I'm going to go out with him knowing that and walk in his power. What about folks that, that want to celebrate a day of the week as Sabbath today? Well, let me start with Romans 14, verse 5. It says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Okay? You make sure you rest in Christ. You find the Sabbath rest in Christ. And you honor other people's convictions about the Sabbath. You know in your own heart what your convictions are on it. Colossians 2. Paul comes out even stronger. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anybody judge you based on that. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I think we'd be foolish not to take advantage of the rest that comes in Christ. And I enjoy a day of rest in my weekly rhythm. I see it as that gift from God. I, I personally think we'd be foolish not to accept that. But what Paul's saying here is don't go around looking to nail people because they handle their Sabbath different than you do. You're missing the whole point. You're falling into the Pharisees' trap. Galatians 4. Verses 8 through 11, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. What's he saying? He's saying all that stuff is a shadow of Christ. Don't get caught up in arguing with each other about the details. Enjoy the rest that Christ comes to bring. I'm going to close with this idea. James talks about true religion, so I want to be careful here. He talks about it as caring for the widows and orphans. So in that sense, I do believe as we walk with Christ in the power of the Spirit, there is a true sense of religion. But a lot of times when we talk about religion, what we mean is I'm going to climb my way to God. I heard one man say that the key difference between religion and faith in Jesus is two letters, N-E. Religion says do. Jesus says done. It's finished. I made you right with God. I took the price when you trusted in me. Which leads me to a discussion that Dick Lucas wrote, and I'm going to close with this. 
He imagined this discussion between an early Christian and a neighbor in the city of Rome, and he wrote it down for us to enjoy. You know, Rome considered religion a great thing. You know, a lot of, a lot of people had their own different gods and temples and sacrifices, so they weren't, weren't real down on religion itself, but many of them were confused by this Jesus thing. And he imagined this discussion. The Romans says to the Christian, where's your temple or holy place? The Christian says, we don't have a physical temple. Jesus is our temple. He's, he's the way to the Father. So the Roman scratches his head and said, where do your priests work and do their rituals? He said, we don't have physical priests to mediate the presence of God. Jesus is our high priest. So the Roman the more and more confused, says, no priest, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need any more sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice. Romans says, what kind of religion is this? And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. I would add, it is rest in Jesus Christ. 